Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight I'll be teaching on the last in our series on following the king. This is a series on Christian disciplines, and we've done how to read your Bible, how to pray, and then this week we're going to talk about how to make disciples. This is both a sort of how to share the gospel, but also how to um, do discipleship. And I think that this is a term that is uh, pretty regularly misunderstood. And we're going to be looking mostly at the Great Commission and what it says for Christians 2,000 years ago and also today. I think you'll really really enjoy this. I spent all day diving into this and reading many, many great things on this topic. And uh, I look forward to sharing that with you now. Now, next week, we'll go into a new series. And this is going to be on uh, worldviews, different worldviews. And so there will be five worldviews that we look at. But again, for this week, we're going to finish up with Christian Disciplines with a look at how to make disciples. Okay, so I really like that video. I did pull some from, from him and from a few other writers, and I tried to put on there when, when I did do that. Um, I like that he talks about kind of framing the book of Matthew with, with two bookends. He talks about how it starts with Jesus telling disciples right when he meets them, he's going to make them fishers of men. Okay, so the point of their, their mission and the reason why they should follow him is that they're going to be fishermen. You know, they're going to be disciple makers, effectively. And that Matthew ends with the Great Commission. So those are like, it's the beginning, and that's the end, and it's the same mission. It's the same goal. I do think discipleship, and I'm, I'm guilty of this before researching this, is I, I think a discipleship, and you may be different, but it's like kind of like one of two things. It's either like discipleship. It's something that you do like with one other person, like you're trying to get someone to get to a more mature level of being a Christian or something. Or it's maybe even something like a discipleship study. It's where you try and make yourself a more mature Christian. But I don't know that really like Christian discipleship as understood, you know, through the Great Commission especially is really that. Like I think really discipleship is, is like the whole thing. Um, so like there's a difference somehow in like the Americanized like church version of what discipleship is and how we use that word and how I've like heard it used and what it means to be a disciple or, or like a follower of Jesus. Um, so I'm going to try and get at what I think the meeting should be tonight. Um, as an intro, why should you want to be, uh, sorry, why should you want to make disciples? I think if we're going to come to a lesson on how to make disciples, you should want to make disciples. And I guess we have different reasons. But the first is just this is something I've added in, but it's the law of reciprocity. And this is kind of like a business or a sales concept. But I think it has application to, to what we're kind of getting at. And I'll just read that it's the law that basically says that when someone does something nice for you, you will have a deep-rooted psychological urge to do something nice in return. How we use this in orthodontics is we give new patients when they come in a, a gift. And that gift is in a bag, it's got a little paper coming out of it, has our logo on the front, and it's like a cup or a mug or something like that. It's a small gift, okay? Maybe it costs us 85 cents from foreign print, or she would know, a dollar and seven cents, whatever. Um, the point is, is that if I give that to them, the law of reciprocation would say, that they are more likely to buy braces from us, okay? So that's like the sales tactic. And you'll see that play out in a lot of different ways, okay, like in a sales world. All right, we're not talking about sales tonight, but what we are talking about is the idea that we too have received a gift from God. We have received, I would say, the gift from God, okay? Uh, we've received God's mercy, that's your first blank, and we are aware of his majesty. And so certainly a lot more than a, than a cup that I've ordered from China on foreign print, okay? Um, and because of that, we owe him everything. All right? We don't just owe him, yeah, I think I'll buy some Invisalign or braces from you. We, we should owe him everything. And so in the sense of why would you want to make disciples? Well, we're going to learn that he, he told us to do it, and we have every reason to want to reciprocate for, for a God that saved us. Okay? Um, and uh, I would say, just to be clear, this is not like the health and wealth gospel. It's not that idea of reciprocation that... You know, well, if, if I do this for God, he'll do this for me. Or, you know, I'm planting a seed and it's going to grow into all this. That's not the point at all. It's just the idea that we should be motivated by the fact that God's given so much to us to do the same in return or what he's asked of us. And I guess the disappointing thing is, is that we oftentimes we don't do that. It's sort of like we're receiving these gifts and we're kind of like not thankful for them. Which you kind of see like in like a handout culture or like when people get things for free, like they don't appreciate it at all. Um, I think sometimes maybe we're guilty of that. So we didn't deserve grace, we got it for free, and we sometimes we act like that, you know? All right, so the next one is the gospel is the best news ever. Um, this is kind of maybe done a lot, and we've maybe talked about it a lot, but um, when you have good news, you want to tell everybody, okay? And so whether that's like you just saw a good movie, 
and you're like, I gotta tell you about this movie. Um, which like I watched The Quiet Place. That was a movie that when it came out, like everyone was like, tell me about it. I thought it was okay. It was all right. It wasn't a lot of dialogue. It was very quiet. It was very, very quiet. Just kidding. Um, it was okay. Um, if you saw someone famous, you like want to tell everyone about it, and now you, you post it online, and it like gets all this engagement. You're like, oh my gosh, how was he? He's like, I mean, we didn't talk. I just took a photo, and he seemed annoyed by it, you know. But um, or like a parent whose kid just got into medical school. So like when your parents, you'd be at church, you told me got a medical medical school. They're telling everybody and. Everyone that's that your your parents' age comes to me and say, Ryan, we're so proud of you. This is so great, you know. So like for a, like a month, but your parents are like legitimately proud. Or you'll see when you have uh, your parents when they become grandparents, they will tell everyone and they will show photos to everyone of that kid. Of course, with the gospel, as good a, good a news as all those things are, it's better news, and so uh, we should want to tell people about it. Okay, I'd even go a little bit further to say like if no one hears that you got into medical school or that you know, you have a new grandkid, or that you met someone famous, like, what would happen? Well, nothing. Like, their life will still go on. Uh, but if no one hears the gospel, that's a major issue. And so it really should be something that we desperately want to share with people. Uh, the last thing is very straightforward, and there's a blank here, but it's our God-given mission. So that mission comes in the form of the Great Commission, which we'll talk about. And then David Platt says, to be a disciple of Jesus is to make disciples of Jesus. And so you can't really be a disciple if you're not making disciples. And so it'd be like to say you're a chef and, oh, when was the last time you cooked? Oh, it's been a few years. You know, I'm just, yeah, I haven't done it in a while. Well, then you're not a chef, okay? Um, so it is sort of synonymous and hand in hand. All right, so jumping in. The five steps of the Great Commission. I'm going to have someone read this. This is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Who feels like reading? All right. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Okay, so this is like the parting words, effectively, of Jesus. And I've underlined all the main things I'm going to talk about in terms of the five steps. But let's kind of go down uh, the line one at a time. So the first kind of main idea is to go. All right? And so in going, there's always fear that's associated with that sort of that first step. For the disciples, we read about this, they left everything behind. Okay, They lost their careers, their friends, their families, their safety. They also, in a different sort of way, they lost their sin and they also lost themselves. Um, and so for a lot of us, especially those of us in like medical school, and not like it just has to be medical school, but you've got your career, let's say, uh, the idea of going and losing any of that is extremely scary and probably such that most of us wouldn't do it. Um, but the disciples did do that. Now I've heard it kind of said before, like, well, the disciples, they're all kind of like losers in a way. Like they were all kind of like, they weren't the best of the best. I've heard that kind of explanation. And that's fair, I guess. Uh, there's a classic Rob Bell video where he talked about that called Dust and how they weren't the best of the best. They didn't make it into rabbi school and they were fishers and all this kind of stuff. But still, even if they were like losers, okay, whatever, um, they were still leaving a lot of stuff, okay? They dropped their nets. They dropped things that they had paid money on to do their, their craft and they still followed Jesus. Uh, in Luke 9, Jesus tells potential disciples to leave and not even tell their families. So you probably remember some of that story. And then in Luke 9, 23 through 26, it says this, uh, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it uh, for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose um, or forfeit their very self or their soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Um, so it doesn't really mince words here. This is pretty scary stuff. Um, the idea that, you know, if, if we don't follow Jesus in this life, if we don't make disciples now, um, he may turn his back on us, okay? Um, and there is a sense of, you know, going that does require us stepping out in faith, and that being the first step. David Platt says that since self is no longer our God, safety is no longer our priority. And so I think, you know, anytime you talk about missions to like the Middle East, I remember when I was in dental school, like it was the first year I was there, they had someone come to CMDA and was talking about the, uh, was it the, what do you call it, the 240 window? 1040 window. 1040 window, thank you, I knew that didn't sound right. Okay, 1040 window, basically like the Middle East, and how we need to send, you know, our families there, and we send missionaries there, and all this kind of stuff. And there was a guy that had been in the military, and he was like, 
very adamantly against it. Like he made it very obvious. Like like r- raised his hand and was like, I think that's very. Um, what's the right way of saying that? Uh, foolish or like, yeah, foolhardy. What do you want to say? Because he's like, I have kids and I'm not taking them over there and all this kind of stuff. And there's part of me that definitely like agreed with him. I was like, yeah, I'm not taking my kids over to Iraq or Iran or whatever. And then there was part of me even at that time was like, I kind of feel like that's maybe what we should do, you know? And so it's, it's a conflicting thing. Um, but I don't think Jesus is conflicted about it. And I think it depends on what we feel is our, our greatest priority. And if our greatest priority is safety, then it might be that our, that our God is, is ourselves um, and that it's not actually the mission that God has given us, okay? Uh, and going is always a little dangerous, going on any trip, even going to like California, getting on a plane, there's always a thought of, you know, we may not come back. And I've got kids now, and there's always this thought, like when we travel together, it's like, what happens? So we have a list that's written out for what happens if we die. Um, but that needs to be quickly pushed to the side if our priorities are in line. Okay, second thing, make disciples, the blank is, of all nations. We'll talk about how to, to do this, how to make disciples a little bit later tonight. Um, but I guess I would say, even when this lesson was taught originally, I think you had it like as how to make disciples, but what was taught was how to share the gospel or vice versa. Yeah. And I don't know if, if you all feel the same way, but I, I feel like I separate in my mind evangelism and discipleship. Does anyone else do that? Okay, Michael does. not um, So for everyone else, just kidding, he's just thinking. Um, I always think of evangelism as like this thing that comes first, like someone's saved, and then they're discipled. You know, then they become a disciple, or they become more mature. That's how I've always thought of it. I just don't know if that's really like how it's viewed in the Bible. But anyway, I would say evangelism, or sharing the gospel so that someone believes it, so that they're baptized, so they go from a non-believer to a believer, or whatever you want to say, I think that's the first step, but it's not the only goal. Okay, So it's part of the process. And I would say that evangelism, or if we want to view it in a bigger sense, like making disciples, is not some isolated event where someone reads a card or says a prayer or is dunked in a, in a, in a pool and then it's over. Okay? It's a commitment to a relationship that lasts a long time. Um, and it does, it, maybe it starts with evangelism in some sense, but it carries way on beyond that. Um, discipleship then also is not just something that happens in a classroom or at a conference or in some sort of one-on-one like mentoring session. Um, or it's only something that happens when someone's mature. Uh, discipleship is really getting someone to take on the mantle of a, being a follower of Christ, to be a disciple. Okay. Um, all right, this statement of all nations, I did not know this, but there are 11,000 people groups in the world, and there's over 6,000 that have not been reached with the gospel yet. And so definitely this is something that's from a David Platt thing, part of this, but um, he feels very, very strongly, and he works, I guess he's with the Gospel Coalition now? Or who's he with now? Southern Baptist uh, Missions? He was with the International Mission Board. Okay. He actually just took a job as a, he's going to start preaching again. At really? In DC, so. I'm sure you're excited. Well, this podcast will be back. <laughs> Good. But uh, he and obviously a lot of other people feel very strongly that we need to be intentionally going to these groups. Okay. All right. Third thing. Uh, so we, we're supposed to go. We're supposed to make disciples of all nations. We're supposed to baptize them. And I would say that when we talk about baptism, obviously, depending on where you kind of where you grew up or what you know stream you're in this is either means one thing or another thing it doesn't really matter it's obviously what well, does matter we'll say that but um, the theology exactly of what you think that is or when someone's saved or what that process looks like that's not uh, the important thing the important thing is it is a, is a clear and inextricable part of this process um, and that baptism whether that's spiritual or it's physical it's both or whatever you want to say uh, we learn that it does change who we are so in Romans 5 and 6, we studied this about how we go from being in Adam to then having life in, in Christ. And so in Adam, we are dead. So all humanity is in Adam. We're human, okay? Uh, we all have the same DNA. But uh, in Christ, we, we are alive. It's our second kind of personhood, you could say. Okay, and it's through baptism that we die to our in Adam nature and that we're raised to be in Christ. Okay, and so by the grace of God, we are forgiven in that process okay so that's baptism and that's something we're told to do all right so then the second thing is we teach them or we teach and so if you aren't teaching at church or leading a Bible study I would say start today I think one of the things that keeps us from starting today is uh, maybe there are people that are more talented at teaching or maybe there's just people that have been doing it for a long time um, and it's really hard to think about starting doing that might also be there's not a lot of opportunities I would think that uh, obviously, just right off the bat, if you're a female in a church that doesn't have females that get up and teach, that's like a little bit of a limit to your ability to teach. 
Obviously, I think there's other ways that you can teach. Um, there's small groups you could start. There's little Bible studies you could do. I think there's always an opportunity if you want to, to teach. Once you have kids, they're your first students if you've not taught yet. Um, and then you begin to teach in the way that you model your, your behavior, the way that you read the Bible at night before they go to bed. Um, I think if you're a doctor, you're able to teach to your patients. I think there's always an opportunity to do that, uh, both in word and in deed. But I think intentionally, you should seek out opportunities to teach. And it doesn't matter how talented you are. I think that we need to have the words of Jesus on our lips day by day so that the people around us, they are taught through both how we act and the things that we say. It's really easy to make everything we say just of a certain base, lowest common denominator kind of nature. But I think it's important to inject in that and be saturated with the words of Jesus. I think the more that we read, the more that we pray, the more that we do speak in those ways. Okay? All right. Exciting stuff. Last thing. I'm with you always. All right, so we're supposed to go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. And then the last little part is, I'm with you always, which I put this in there because it's supposed to make you feel better about it. Because I think that anytime you think of doing this on your own, it's scary. But the fact is, Jesus says that he will be with us. And of course, in this moment, he's talking to his disciples, his apostles. You can imagine this is right before he ascends. I'm sure they're crying. They're probably afraid. They're probably thinking, well, we're probably about to get killed. This is not good. You just came back. We were excited. Now you're leaving. Why are you leaving? All these sorts of questions, all these sorts of you know, senses of doubt, and probably anger and fear. Um, but he's saying, well, I'm going to be with you always, which I'm sure was some comfort for them. And I'm sure they didn't quite understand what he meant. Okay, uh, But what he means is, is that he gives us his spirit. So spirit with capital S is the blank. And we know that from Bible verses like 1 John 4.13. Uh, this is how we know that uh, we live in him and he in us. He has given us the spirit. And then I, I like this verse from Isaiah 41. Not necessarily exactly about the spirit, but the same idea. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so I would just say kind of in a general sense that there, the Spirit gives us a lot of things, um, but at the very least what it gives us is it gives us the ability to speak in ways that we couldn't on our own um, and to be effective at discipleship in ways that we can never do without that help. Um, and so, uh, and God, if He's with us, who can be against us? That kind of idea. All right, so I really like this article on myths, and I'm trying to go fast because I put too much in here, but this is from Kathleen Nielsen. She's actually at Vanderbilt, uh, which is interesting. So she's, a, I think, a PhD there, which I, I know some people who have studied there, so that was kind of cool. But a really solid article. This is on five myths about sharing the gospel, which I think also kind of applies, again, to discipleship. It's kind of like one and the same. It's kind of part of that bigger process. Um, and see if any of these land with you. But the first myth is evangelism is something I do myself, which kind of follows from that discussion on, you know, that I am with you always to the end, uh, you know, having the Spirit with us. We're not on our own. We have the Spirit with us always, because it's not something you have to do by yourself. I think like most things, if you think about having to like do any task by yourself, it's always difficult to imagine, okay? Even if it's like, you know, packing up for a trip by yourself. It's like, oh, but if you got somebody that can help you, it makes, you know, a lot of difference. So you should always remember that. A um, couple of verses here just on the idea that um, the body of Christ is a family. And so I think that gets a little bit more to even like in a group like this or like in a church, the idea that you really aren't on your own and we're not intended to be on our own. We're not intended to make disciples on our own. So if you sent me to India right now to try and make disciples by myself, man, I'd probably get there. And then I'd probably like sit in a restaurant or an internet cafe and be like, I don't know what to do. Um, you know, so it is very important. And what you see throughout the Bible is that when he sends out disciples, he sends them in groups. I think there's a reason that that is the case. Okay. And 1 Corinthians 12, it says, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And so we've heard that, that, you know, some people are the foot and some people are the kneecap or whatever. You know, there's different, there's different tasks and different talents that, that you can play. And so what I talked about earlier about if you're not teaching, you should. It's very possible that your, your, you know, your skill set is not getting up in front of 100 people and teaching. It doesn't mean that you can't teach in some way. It doesn't mean that you can't teach like two people, invite people over for breakfast you know, once a week. That can be teaching. And it can just mean that you are the one that facilitates like a little book and you've prepared and you kind of go through the book. You know I mean, I think anybody can do that, especially you guys. You all go to like all the school and stuff. So, um, and then in Ephesians 4, it talks a little bit more about unity and maturity in the body of Christ or in the church. Uh, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. 
For him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Okay, and so kind of the idea is, is that like how good would you be at basketball if you didn't have a right arm, okay, um, or a right ankle or a left ear, I don't know. Maybe without the ear you could be okay. Um, but the point is, is that for the church to really thrive and for discipleship to really work, you do need the body of Christ. You need everyone as a part of that. Okay, so myth number two. We don't have to speak the gospel, we just live it. Or at least wait and earn the right to speak. So this first thing, what is it? Francis of Assisi, they attribute that to him. Is What's the quote? I know you know it. Um, everywhere you go, um, everywhere you go, preach Christ, and if necessary, use words. Yeah. So that thing gets plastered everywhere. That's like a classic like Pinterest thing. It's probably on someone's wall, like right up, you know, above the oven or whatever. Um, and it's not bad, but I do think it kind of gets stretched a little bit further than maybe even what he was getting at. Or maybe he was getting at that. I have no idea. It definitely gets stretched kind of in like a social justice heavy culture or like a, even like a legalistic culture probably. But the idea that, well, we don't have to worry about these words, these verses, and these commands. We're just going to worry about like loving and washing feet and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the more I read into this, I, don't, I, don't, I think that misses the point a lot. Um, I don't think it's enough to shout at somebody like a, you know, a preacher on Bill Street or something. And that doesn't do enough either. So you've got to have both. But you do need to speak with words. I think the other part of this is wait for the right to earn, you know, wait and earn the right to speak. I think this idea that, well, I don't want to start off too, you know, hot and heavy. I don't want to be like, do you know Jesus? Like the first time I meet someone. But what oftentimes happens if you if you keep waiting, it's like a year later, and then it comes up, and they're like, oh, you're a Christian? I didn't know that. It's like, well, yeah, but I don't want to bother you with that, you know. So that's not good either. And so I think there's a balance. Like I think that. You know, the more the more holy people I know, if I can say that, you know, the more like people that seem, you know, spiritually disciplined and connected with God, it's not a thing where it's just like once a year that they talk about Jesus. It's a thing that it's peppered in their speech always. It's just a part of who they are, and it should come out, and people should be aware of it and see that in your witness uh, regularly. Um, and also, I'd say that that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So I, I think that it is important to say these things. I, maybe somebody can gather that from watching me, but I think it's also essential that, uh, that they hear it. And uh, this is a quote, but we should not underestimate the words that can be spoken during a plane or taxi ride with a salesperson or table server or in the process of building a relationship. She had a lot of examples of that, of just like little insignificant things that turned into major things. Like a, she had a friend that wasn't a Christian and the, the, like a air repairman came by and said that Jesus loves you, and she said it was really weird, and, but it, she thought about it, and that ended up being kind of the impetus to her accepting Christ, which is like a random thing. But uh, I think those things, it's, it's never too small. So your opportunity to pray with someone in you know, an emergency room setting or whatever, like, that can make a huge difference. And so we have to be bold enough to want to say those things and do those things. All right, myth number three, evangelism requires special training. Um, I would say that special training is great. Um, you know, I wouldn't say of that it's a myth to say that you know performing heart surgery, you know, requires special training. And that's a myth. You know, I think it's important to have preachers that go to school and that learn this stuff and that you know are able to, to kind of represent a church and teach a church and, and pastor a church or whatever you want to say. Um, but I don't think that evangelism, sharing the gospel, I don't think that disciple making uh, requires special training. I think it's a it's an excuse that we use. I think it's a myth along the same lines of why we don't teach. Well, I don't teach because. I just I don't like public speaking. Well, who does? I mean, really, like until you do it a, a ton of times. And even at that, like you talk to most people who speak regularly, they really don't enjoy it that much. Like it's it's difficult. Like no one, like I don't. I mean, I'm doing this. I enjoy it, but it's also always difficult. You know, it's a lot of work. Um, so you just have to kind of like make yourself do it. Okay. Um, and so it doesn't require special training. This is a classic quote about discipling. Is that Christian discipling is the work of one beggar pointing another be beggar to bread. Is that C.S. Lewis, maybe? It sounds like Lewis. I'm not sure. I'm going to write that it is. I think it is. But uh, <laughs> so you get that point. So it doesn't take, I mean, like, that's not like, it's not rocket science. Okay, you're just kind of helping someone kind of see the path. You're sharing with them ancient truths in the form of the gospel. It's like, well, here it is. Okay, it doesn't take special training. Now, obviously, you're going to run into people that, um, would require special training to get the answers that they need. So David Platt, in a, a sermon that I watched, talked about this lawyer in Birmingham, he used to be in Alabama, that 
he would have breakfast with week after week. And the first time they met, this guy had, he says, I've never seen so many post-it notes in a Bible ever. And he's like, he had this long list of questions. And, and David was like, David Platt was like, I mean, I didn't know half of these questions. He's like, I mean, they were crazy. Um, but they studied together, and eventually, you know, the guy came to accept Jesus. So, um, obviously, David may be a bad example because he is highly trained. Um, but the truth is, is that it comes through a relationship, and it's got to start somewhere. And what I've always said is, is that if you run into a question you don't know the answer to, what, what do you say in any other walk of life? If you're a doctor and someone asks you something, you're like, I don't know the answer. Sorry. No, you, you ask someone else. You, you either ask Dr. Google, which is probably the best place to look, no, you ask someone that's older. You ask like an upper resident or you ask a doctor or whatever. You find the answer, okay? That's, that should not be any different about discipleship, and it shouldn't keep you from trying to get better at what you're doing. So you don't just stop in medical school because there's a question you don't know the answer to because you would have stopped a long time ago. Um, you keep going. Keep going. All right, so I like this story. He talks about the church of Antioch, and I'm familiar with Antioch from the Bible um, and from certainly from Acts, but I don't like know it intimately. Like I don't think of it in that way. Um, but it's considered to be maybe the most important church of the early um, church, of early Christianity, at least like top five. Um, it was, uh, so actually the church, the Gentile church, they say was founded in Antioch in some sense. Um, they were first called Christians there. So in Acts 11, it was followers of Christ in Antioch that were first called Christians. Um, it was the base of Paul's missionary work, Antioch was. Uh, Ignatius, who you may have read about if you look at any church history, he was one of the earliest church fathers and writers. He was from Antioch. My, my question is, is who started the church of Antioch? Does anyone know? It was not Ignatius. If you were thinking, I'd say the answer. So this big deal church, one of the biggest churches ever, the, the place that uh, Paul would start all his missionary journeys at this is the base of operations. Who started that church? Anna, do you know? I always think of it as Paul because I always know it as like his first you know, stop on all of his missionary journeys, but it, it's not apparently. I don't know. I never said it wasn't, but no. It's not, and the reason we don't know is because it, it's not really said. It, it's, it says in Acts that uh, it refers to those who started the church as some of them, just some people, some ordinary people. Okay, so people without seminary training, without a church that supported them, without some like kickoff ministry or like a conference where they you know, kind of came together and they split up into small groups and were like, we're going to start a church and we're going to study this for two years. We're going to do a demographic study and then we're going to go and do this. It was just some Christians uh, who planted one of the greatest and most influential churches in history. Um, and so when we think about, you know, planting a church or doing really anything, sometimes in the church, like changing the curtains, you know, it requires... Well, we got to get half the elders, and we're going to split up into subcommittee, and we're going to, you know, we'll, we'll parse this stuff out if we get a chance. Okay, some of that's healthy, probably. Uh, some of it's probably overdoing it. If we're going to start a church or like a mission, uh, we're going to get a gifted communicator, uh, gifted musicians, a good place to gather programs for all ages and stages um, before we even do anything. Okay, none of that's mentioned here. Okay, and maybe there's some other details. Maybe they had those people. I'm not trying to under, you know, downplay that sort of stuff. But these were just ordinary men and women sharing the gospel. Okay, um, disciples making disciples, which is what uh, God intends. And so I guess the question that comes up for me is, is that have we delegated too much to those that we pay in the church? And I do want to spend like a little bit of time just kind of discussing that. Um, do you think that that's true, that we have sort of separated, you know, evangelism and disciple making and made that a thing that only people who get paid by a church do? Or do you not think that's true? Consumerism um, has 
uh, inundated our religion in that way that church is almost just saying it's something we what can we get out of it and not necessarily something that we can add to so yes uh, we're not delegated too much yeah I, I guess I would offer this I, I, I've been asking the question so obviously I think it's true to some degree and I, I mean Eric was here last week and I have a lot of respect for the things that Eric does a lot of which I'll never know you know he's like does jail ministry every week and I'm thinking I, I don't think I'd want to do that you know um, and, and many other things and I, I think there's nothing wrong with having paid ministers I do think that from a mindset standpoint you have to and that's the thing about a church is like they could always use more help. It could always use more uh, people to volunteer and, and to add into it and to start a new class as needed or to pour time into, even if you're like the person that brings like breakfast every Sunday. I mean, something like that that could make really like a big difference. We brought donuts for like a year and a half and it's literally been a year and a half later and there's still kids that kind of come around the corner to see if we have donuts. Now, I don't know what that has to do with anything, but it made an impact, okay? Um, yeah, they still come, it's crazy. It's really crazy. Um, it's like ants. Like when you get ants in your house, you can't get rid of them. So I usually refer to them as rats. So ants was a nicer way, but thank you for the laugh. Um, but the point is, is that there's always opportunity to kind of pour into that. And that's just in a corporate church setting, like so much more even outside of the walls of the church. Okay. So I'm not just trying to say it can only happen there for two hours. Um, and so I just think it's something to be aware of and just know that you'll be in a position where you can be really active in a church to whatever degree you want to be. What I would say is, is that when you get into a leadership position, I think it's just as important to then try and find other ways for people to be active. Um, and so that's a part of discipleship. Like it's not just about you getting closer to God or like you're getting closer to enlightenment. I'm almost there. It is a whole way along is trying to pull people with you and, and to kind of sacrificially say, you know what, I love teaching or I love doing announcements, but I'm going to step away and I'm going to let this person do that. And so I've had to really train myself to like, and that person may be terrible. Like we run into this doing class, like, that was rough, you know, <laughs> but they're going to get better, you know, so you have to like learn that. And, and, the, and that's like with kids, like giving them tasks and they fall on their face or they do a terrible job with it or they break something. It's like, well, I used to break stuff too, you know, so you, you have to learn that, that way of mentoring and, and teaching and helping people get to a place where they need to be. All right. Myth number four, uh, it's better not to talk about hell. I think this is probably one of the more common ones right now. Um, I think if you ever shared the gospel with someone, or if you ever talked about your Christian faith with someone who's not a believer, inevitably the question comes up, uh, do you think that I'm going to hell? And it's always like a, ooh. <laughs> oh, no, you? No. <laughs> you're, you're great. I love you. Um, but it's an uncomfortable question because it's, uh, it's just not the way that we're culturally patterned to think and act. And in the South, we're, we're taught to be very polite and to say bless your heart about people that we think are terrible and are a total mess, you know? Um, it's sort of this backwards way of, of being is that politeness sort of usurps honesty. Um, and uh, it's sort of, like I said, it's like the side effects that they whisper rapidly at the end of a prescription medication commercial. It's like they're trying to like slip it in there that like, and you might die. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I'm just a little bald. <laughs> like, I didn't know I was going to die. Um, but it is an important part of the story and you have to tell it. And this is what I'll say, and I'll just read it so I say it right, is the Bible, from beginning to end, is agonizingly honest about the wrath of God towards sin. And that includes hell, okay? And there's ways to theologically get around hell, and you're, you're welcome to do that. Um, but it's, it's pretty hard to, to remove, not just like, it's not just like some things where maybe, well, Jesus didn't talk about it, so I don't have to believe it. It was just Paul, which that's hokey too, but... Um, or hockey, uh, but Second Thessalonians one, Revelation twenty, Matthew twenty five, Mark nine, they all speak about an eternal hell where where people who sin suffer. Okay, and that's not fun. And it's uncomfortable to say, but it is part of the story. Um, and uh, this author says the irony is that only in understanding a holy God's just wrath can we take in the cross where Jesus suffered that wrath in our place, bearing our sin. Um, David Platt says this is why make disciples because heaven and hell exist and the end of the world is coming all right and so we can't sugarcoat the gospel because if we do we take its power away we take away what the gospel is and so you can neuter the gospel you can take hell away you can make it just about grace but as David says it's sort of like clapping with one hand you know you can't just have grace and love and, and take the sin away in the same way that you can't just have sin and judgment and wrath uh, they don't fit 
together, okay? Uh, you gotta have both. Um, and then myth number five, I'll get to it eventually. I think I just left in y'all's notes. How often is that true? Um, you know, David talked about the Eisenhower matrix, which I talk about a lot as well, about how things are important and not important and urgent and not urgent. And usually the things that we do are just ones that are urgent, um, which usually means that we're doing things that aren't important. So urgency is not a sign of importance or value. It's just a thing that presses and that motivates us to do things. Um, and typically things like discipleship or sharing the gospel, they fall into things that are important. We'd argue that, but they're not urgent. They're not pressing on us, so we never do them. Uh, but on our deathbed, the things that we'd wish we had done would be those that are super important but not urgent. And we're not going to wish we'd watch more Netflix. Uh, we're going to wish, you know, I wish I'd share the gospel with more people. And as we're, you know, kind of gathered up in heaven one day and we're sort of, you know, we give an account for our lives, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's going to matter, you know. So um, our time to disciple is now, and we don't know how much time we have. All right, so moving on in. We're making good, we're making good time here, I think. I hope. How many minutes are we at? Okay. Four ways to make disciples. This is from Mark Dever, who I don't know, but um, I think there's some good stuff here. And this is really straightforward stuff. Four ways to make disciples. I'm just going to go ahead and, and call them out so you can fill them in, then you can kind of listen. Uh, teach. Correct, model, and love. Okay, and then we'll come back to teach. All right, so with teach, at its core, discipling is teaching. Uh, we, we saw in the, in the Great Commission, that's one of those points there. And I guess I would just ask this, and this is a question for now, and it's a question for in the future, because you may be at a church now that won't be the church you're at in three or four years. It might not be the church you're at in six months. Questions that I think are always important to ask and answer is, is your church teaching the Bible, the Old and the New Testament? Is it teaching big chunks of Scripture and little chunks of Scripture? Um, what about your Sunday school class? What is it teaching? What about the Christian books and the blogs that you read? What are those things teaching? It's really, really important uh, what you're being taught so that when you teach others that it's correct. Just like if you go to the worst medical school on earth, what are you being taught? Like What are they, what are they teaching you? Um, and there's really no way to get back from that. You'll kind of see that in dentistry. Is like sometimes people have gone to what you sort of understand to not be a great school, and you'll talk to them about dentistry or orthodontics or whatever, and it's like pretty apparent. It's like, so you've never you never bent wire? Like, oh, okay. Um, so you just never really can kind of get back from that. So it's good to surround yourself with, with solid teaching. Uh, then I would say, are you having spiritually meaningful conversations? I think it's fine to talk about sports or talk about movies or talk about your kids' schools and all these sort of things that we always talk about, like things are comfortable and they're easy to talk about. Um, but I think you have to talk about God, ask people, what's God been teaching you about Him lately, and things like that. Um, I think small groups are great in this way, and I think a group that the point of the group is something spiritual, I think it's a great excuse to have these conversations. And I always leave these nights like really spiritually uplifted and like in the right mindset. And I love that it's on a Monday because I think my, my, my week starts that way. Um, so I guess maybe it should be on a Sunday night. Sometimes I'm off on Mondays. Anyway. All right. Next thing is correct. This is another difficult one. This is kind of like, uh, you know, we don't need to talk about hell, and also we don't need to correct people because I think it's, it's uncomfortable. Those are myths. But um, sometimes discipling requires that you warn others about choices that they are making. Um, and I'm, I, I need this as much as anybody. But uh, people grow when you teach them general truths, but also when you correct their particular errors. So I know this from training people to do orthodontics. The hardest part it's one thing to tell people how to do something, but it's another to have to correct them and, and to, to kind of redirect them and say, you know, this was not good. And, and one way that you train people is, is you'll tell them when they do a good job. It's sort of like training a dolphin, you could say. Okay, you, know, you give them a little treat when they do something right. When they do something wrong, you don't give them the treat. And they're like, what's up? You know, why did I get the treat? Well, because I did it wrong. Um, so you have to tell people very specifically and very intentionally and very quickly that was incorrect, that was not good. And so I think like when you're training like an animal, which I say it that way, but like a dolphin, if you don't tell them, you tell them like, you know, a couple days later, like, you know that day where you didn't do the jump the right, that was bad, like, like it doesn't work. You have to tell them like right in that moment. The same thing is true, I think, of discipleship. You need to tell them right then. It's like with kids, like if Libby does something bad, it's like immediately, you're in timeout. There's no time to argue about it. This is what it is. And if you argue, it gets worse. You know, you have to be very systematic about it. Um, so I think this is true is that sin can deceive us. And so sometimes we don't see the things in our lives that are bad or the way that sin is wrecking our lives. So we need other believers to, to expose for us the things that are not the way they should be. 
Mark says it like this. He says, joining a church is like throwing paint on the invisible man. I love that image, that there's a part of us that we don't see, and then going to church is sort of like paint being thrown on it, and now revealing that there's this thing there that was there all along. So two examples from my life of being corrected, and I don't even know if Anna knows one of these, but um, it's nothing that will be hopefully too embarrassing to you, but one of them was I was a seventh grader in the youth group, and there's a guy named Charles Blatchley. Um, you probably know the Blatchleys, yep. And uh, I didn't know that when I wrote this, but yeah. Um, and Charles has since passed away. He had like an aneurysm when he was like a senior in high school. It was really sad and really tragic. Uh, his dad is a, or I guess was, he's a retired like oncologist, I think. Is that right? Um, but uh, anyway, Charles was like always really mature, like a guy that always seemed, you know, like an old soul. And uh, also like, I think he would admit, like pretty, pretty like nerdy guy, like really into like school band and just, just into different stuff. And I mean, not that I was the coolest guy ever. I was like an overweight seventh grader. But um, anyway, but I thought I was cool and I was, you know, had like a, a big mouth and tried to be funny. And we uh, had a friend, Eric Vines, who I kind of like modeled after him too a little bit. He was a little bit more precocious than I was. And so he would kind of make fun of the band kids. And so I would too, like in the youth group or whatever. And mostly like kind of kidding, but. You know, it was probably like in hindsight, like not a good thing. It wasn't very nice, you know. But we're just, you know, whatever, seventh graders. Well, I remember there was one time at church, like after church, I was like making fun of him or doing something like that. And he like pushed me against the wall. And like it wasn't like he was violent. He just like to get my attention, like pushed me against the wall. And he's like, he's like, you need to stop. He's like, it really hurts my feelings or something like that. I'm going to start crying thinking about Charles. But um, just like almost like one of these like weird moments where it, like things like kind of paused or like stopped. He like told me, like kind of like peered in my soul a little bit and like told me, I was like, Okay, and of course I was like mad. I was like defensive, and I went to get my older brother to like beat him up or whatever, which didn't happen. But for some reason that like has scarred my mind. Like that moment of like, I'm sure my parents had told me to be nice to people, and I'm sure they tried to model that. But like that little moment of him just like speaking to me, almost like like the spirit was like speaking through him or something. It was like okay. So I've like never forgotten it. Now another thing recently was a friend of mine, Kyle. He's uh, lives in California. He's actually a member of the Christian church, ironically, and he's in these like progressive rock groups with me. And he's, a, he's an outspoken believer, really good guy. Well, I'll just be honest, as a guy, sometimes I, I don't use the best language. I think a lot of guys do that. Just one of those things, I'm not proud about it. I try to work on it. I grew up around a brother that always had really bad language, so I'll, I'll blame my brother. I'm just kidding. Um, but occasionally, like in conversations, like I might would say something that wasn't, you know, ideal or, or super Christian. And... Kyle uh, messaged me separately. This was like a few months ago and was like, you know, when you do that, you know, as a Christian, that doesn't send the best message. And uh, I was like really embarrassed because I'm like, it's not like I'm seventh grader. I can excuse it. You know, I'm like 33 and I uh, have kids and stuff. And But it was like so true. And I was just like, ooh. And what's weird about this is I have like maybe in my life, like those are two of them, but maybe a handful of times where someone's like really corrected me or like you know had the boldness to say something and it should be so many more times than that like because I mean believe me I've deserved way more times than just those two um, and so I, I guess you ha it requires someone that is going to be humble enough and receptive enough to like listen to that but I don't know if in those moments like I, I would like I was necessarily ready to be receptive it's just that it was so true and it was it came from the right place that it, that I did so I don't know what I'm getting at. I don't know I'm crying so much. But um, I think you have to be willing to say those things, and they're not easy. And it's not the fun thing to be the critical person. It's much easier to say, like, oh, everything's good, you know. Um, but it's really important to correct. Okay. Now, model, we'll move on to. And this doesn't mean taking, like, pretty photos on Instagram. Um, this is the idea that we communicate not merely with our words, but by our whole lives. Um, and also that what happens in a discipling re relationship requires more than classroom teaching. Um, so uh, I've got a funny story for this. This is about Libby. Anna just told me it yesterday. She said that you know when we're, when we're driving, we're pulling out, they're supposed to put their seatbelts on before the car comes on. They're supposed to have it on. Of course they don't. So it's always this, are your seatbelts on? No, because they're like doing something stupid. It's like, get your seatbelts on. Well, apparently, and you'll probably correct me if I say this wrong, but Libby didn't have it on. She said, well, I'm going to be like a mom, and I'm going to wait to put my seatbelt on until we've started to pull away from the garage. Is that what she said, kind of? Um, I'm going to be like a mom, and I'll just wait. I'll the <laughs> um, Because that's what, that's what her mom does. Her mom waits to put her seatbelt on. But she's a real perceptive kid, and it's just a funny thing, like such a minor thing, but it's like kids are always watching, and people are always watching, of course. 
Um, it's also kind of like an apprenticeship at a job too, or like with a personal trainer or coach, is, is that um, an apprentice learns by listening and watching and participating. And so it's sort of like the classic thing is that like, you'll hear people and I hear employees say it's like, well, I don't learn by being told, I learn by doing it. You know, it's like one of those things. So like in dental school, like there'd be people that always say that. It's like, well, I can't learn in a classroom. It's like, okay, it's like, really? Well, then why are you in dental school? You know, it's like, you know, it's, but there is some truth to that. It's like you don't really learn how to cut a tooth open until you, you do it, okay? Now you do it in the lab a little bit. Until you really get into a patient, it's like giving a shot. It's like, well, you don't know how to do it until you just do it. You, you can't, you can be told a thousand times how to do it and the angle to approach and what to look for, but you kind of just have to do it. Um, and, and the same is true of, of behavior, is, is, that, is that you can't just tell a kid or tell someone when you're discipling them, this is what you should do. You really have to model it for them. You have to, you know, have to watch that behavior. Uh, we've said this about our kids, is that, you know, you feel like part of why your family they're all believers is that well we're missionaries and like how could they miss it you know it's like what we did every day um, so I think it's really easy if if you're a doctor and you're on call or you're always out of the house like it's really hard to model that behavior for your kids sometimes and so part of doing this group I think for us was this idea that, like well it'll allow us to model this behavior for our kids and then they're so loud that we just put them way up there so they don't ever get to see any of it so that didn't work out when they get older so we have to keep doing this all right um kidding. all right last thing is love uh when it comes to love discipling often goes both ways uh, what i'll say of this group is, is that it's our it's our second year bless you um you almost need so hard that that fell <laughs> yeah catastrophic sneeze um but anyway i was gonna say even though it's our second year of mddds i would say that um from a love perspective i get as much out of this as, as y'all do certainly and probably I get more out of it and I think that's true of discipleship is, is that when you're discipling someone when you go into that sort of relationship um, you get so much more out of that you get so much sp spiritual fulfillment you grow so much it's sort of like when you talk about teaching like those who teach learn so much more than those who are in the classroom and there's there's a true like objective reality of that you put a lot more time into teaching an hour than just that hour you know um, but uh, I think there's a few verses that even back this up. Is uh, Colossians 3, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then uh, Hebrews 10, uh, Let us consider how we may spur on one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit has been for some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not that you disciple just because you're going to get something out of it, but it is true that that's the case. All right, so let's kind of wrap up with our little bit of conclusion. Um, if you accept that you want a disciple, and then you kind of talk about, well, how do you disciple? What are some ways you do it? Now, I think there's always a question of how do you continue to disciple? We've talked about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're just wrapping up a series on spiritual disciplines. So I think that staying in the Bible, reading the Bible, I think praying. One that we didn't talk about that's a spiritual discipline is service. So we, we sort of left that one on the cutting room floor. But... Um, I think those all lead to this idea of sanctification, the idea that you're becoming more like Jesus day after day, and that way you'll be more likely to uh, disciple. Connecting with like-minded Christians, and so being active in a, in a group like this or in a good church, I think those things are great. And then uh, here's one that kind of goes along David's lines. Have we done a goal-setting lecture for this group we this year? We did uh, the first in January. in January we did. Yeah. So I guess, do we do it again in January? Well, no, we don't change. Can't change the schedule now. Um, but I, you know, if in a job setting, especially when you own a business, you set goals. Like if you're any sort of decent business, you set goals, and typically you'll hit those goals because you remind yourself of those goals, whether it's daily or weekly or monthly. Uh, we need to set spiritual goals. Uh, it's maybe hard to set a goal for discipleship, let's say, but setting goals for reading your Bible or for prayer or for uh, attending, you know, church or Bible study or wh whatever that it may be that lead to discipleship. Those are good things to remind yourself of every day. Um, and I'd also say along the same lines of the Great Commission and this idea of go, and that'd be the first thing, uh, you should get started now. So whatever thing you feel like, from a Christian discipline standpoint, if it's like, you know what, I'm a good Bible reader, but I'm a terrible prayer, prayer, prayer. I'm a terrible prayer. Um, get started on that now. Um, I'm actually not great at Bible reading or praying, so I need to start on both. Um, and then the last little point I wanna make is, these are your last blanks. You have responsibility but not control when it comes to disciple making. And so the way that I, the analogy for this is that if you think about cultivating a garden, um, if you're a gardener, 
you have a responsibility to provide and set favorable conditions for the fruit or the vegetables you grow. Um, but you don't necessarily have control over it, okay? So you have the responsibility to try and make it where these tomatoes can grow and thrive, but you can't control what could happen. You can't control the storm that could come in or the raccoon that comes and destroys it or the bird that picks up the seed or whatever, or that there might be a drought or anything like that. We still have the responsibility as the gardener. And so from a discipleship standpoint, we have the responsibility. We know what that responsibility is, is to go and to teach and to baptize and to make disciples. We, we get that. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's going to work out. Okay, it's like the guy that throws the seed on the path and there's all these different types of soil. Like that is sort of one of those things like we have no control over it. God has the control. God is sovereign. Um, and uh, his spirit is with us and that spirit will give us patience. And so if we try and do these things and we keep failing at them, uh, but we're filled with the spirit, uh, we should have patience to continue with it. Um, I want to end with this story is, is that also along those same lines that you may have tried to disciple, you may have tried to share the gospel with someone, and it may not have worked, and it may get frustrating. Um, it's interesting to look at kind of God's sense of time or sense of timeline. And so in our world, we're always about like what's just happened like immediately here. And I always talk about it being like a, a TV series and how there's like second season pro problems, but God sees it as like an eight season series, you know, show. So it's one of those things when you talk to someone that's in the second season of a show, what they're worried about means nothing by season five or six. Um, and so I think that's often true of life is, is that we can kind of cry and moan and groan over some small thing when there's so much more beautiful things to come. And so you look at in chapter seven of Acts. And so in chapter seven of Acts, does anyone know what happens in chapter seven of Acts? Just a little Bible trivia. Stephen. Y'all really? Stephen? Stephen? <laughs> yes. Stephen. Great. Yeah. Um, so Saul and Stephen. So Stephen is a huge leader of the church there, the early Christian church. And Saul is there uh, holding like the coats for these guys that are stoning Stephen. And in that moment, wouldn't you think that Satan feels like I've really accomplished something great here. I'm, I'm killing one of this, you know, these charismatic leaders of this young church. This is going to be great because it'll probably destroy this church. Um, and what happened was in Stephen getting killed, a couple things that happen. That's ultimately what leads to Saul being converted. So on kind of one path. So Saul, who's guilty in a sense for Stephen's death, and Satan has won that little battle. Um, the church in response to that goes on, uh, and part of that church at the time goes on to start the church in Antioch, which ends up being the church that sends Paul off on his missionary journeys eventually, which are the missionary journeys that you know ultimately have brought us here in a, in a sense. Um, and so in anything that you're doing like this is that Satan might win battles, but he won't win the war, okay? And so you have to be uh, real patient and, uh, and just know that things will work out in the end and that if this is the mission that God has given us, and it is, uh, that it will work out. But you have to keep at it. You can't quit. So it could have been very easy for Antioch or the church, people that started that church, they've given up. But thank God that they did not. So, all right, that is it. I know it's a long one. Okay, that is it for tonight. Uh, we will be back next Monday night with a lesson on our new series on worldviews. This will be David Flatt teaching on Christian theism, so Christianity. So we're going to be looking at uh, five specific questions of that worldview, and then we'll do that again with four other worldviews, namely, I believe, nihilism, naturalism, uh, Islamic theism, and postmodernism. So we're going to look at those five worldviews in turn. But for tonight, that's, this is it. So hopefully you got a lot out of that. We had some good discussion afterwards, as we typically do. And uh, if you're in town Monday nights in Germantown, you can come spend those nights with us. You can look us up on Facebook, the uh, Memphis Doctors and Dentists Discipleship Study, or MDDDS. And uh, you can reach out to me, Kyle Fagala, also on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. Um, hopefully you have a great week. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the MDDDS podcast. Good night.